Well, that's because he'd rather have a puppet as president of no the United puppet, States. No puppet. And it's pretty clear. You're the puppet. It's pretty clear you won't admit no, you're that the, the Russians have engaged. You know, I wasn't going to say this at all, but I can't help it. There you go again. <laughs> Jack Kennedy was a friend of mine. Senator, you're no Jack Kennedy. This week on Wake Up to Politics, we're taking a deep dive into presidential debates. We'll look back at top moments from debates past and look ahead to preview what you should expect in the presidential and vice presidential debates coming up this fall. Because when Donald Trump and Joe Biden meet in the debate stage next week, they'll kick off the latest chapter in a long tradition that stretches back not just to the founding of this country, but all the way to before the Common Era. It starts in a very rich tradition where some would say that Protagoras was the father, in antiquity was the father of debate, where Protagoras would teach students how to be adversarial in nature, how to question, and that those batons were handed on to antiquity to various other philosophers. And one of those was Socrates, who would engage in the art of questioning, where he would ask questions to students, and that those students would then respond to that question. And hence, the cross-examination components of debate has their roots in that philosophical tradition, where the philosopher asks the question of the student, and the student has to respond and provide answers. That's Ed Lee, the senior director of the Berkeley Forum for Debate, Deliberation, and Dialogue at Emory University. He's also the coach of Emory's award-winning student debate team. He says that the art of debating was quickly adopted when America was founded, just one of many traditions our founders borrowed from the ancient Greeks. When we established uh, schools in the United States, the the colleges that, that were established during the colonial period, they actually had a mode of what we identify as debate at this moment, where students were asked to recite passages verbatim that they were reading, And during those disputations, their professor or their teacher would ask them questions about the passages that they were reading. And so debate has a very rich tradition in this country, and it's very much wedded and woven into the fabric of education in the United States. But it wasn't until 1858 that debates became a major part of our political fabric as well. That's when a young former congressman named Abraham Lincoln challenged incumbent Stephen Douglas for a Senate seat in Illinois, and the two traveled across the state holding seven three-hour debates throughout the campaign. And those were really, you know, a big deal for their time. They were sort of the equivalent of television. You had thousands of people that would show up to hear the candidates in person, and it became sort of this all-day event. People would bring picnic lunches and sit outside and listen. And so there was a debate tradition pre-broadcast. That's Alan Schroeder, a professor emeritus at Northeastern University who studied debates for decades and is the author of the widely cited book, Presidential Debates, 50 Years of High-Risk TV. Even though Lincoln and Douglas would face off again in the 1860 race for the White House, debates didn't make their way to the presidential level for another century. Wendell Wilkie was the first presidential candidate to challenge his opponent to debate when he urged President Franklin Roosevelt to face him in the 1940 campaign. But FDR declined. And although there were a few presidential primary debates throughout the 40s and 50s, 
no general election presidential candidates would meet on a debate stage until John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon in 1960. The 1960 debates, I would say, were the creation of a lot of different interested parties, but primarily the movers and shakers behind the effort were the, uh, were the big television networks. There were only three at that time in, in the U.S., uh, CBS, NBC, and ABC, and all of them got behind this idea. I think what they were looking for was prestige. I think that, that they recognized that television had become, uh, in the words of Newton Minow from the FCC, a vast wasteland and, you know, just this sort of uh, medium that, that was not being taken seriously. And there, there wasn't, for instance, even network news at that point. Uh, so I think that the networks and the heads of the networks saw this opportunity to legitimize television as a medium and, uh, and to use it for something a little more serious. So they were the ones that were really behind it. Kennedy accepted first. Nixon, the sitting vice president, was much more hesitant. Nixon, at first, you know, indicated that he wasn't interested in doing it, and probably that would have been the smart thing for him to have uh, pursued. But the uh, the pressure was too much, and I think ultimately he didn't want to be seen as being a coward. But both candidates accepted the invitation and carried presidential campaigning into a new medium, television. Good evening. The television and radio stations of the United States and their affiliated stations are proud to provide facilities for a discussion of issues in the current political campaign by the two major candidates for the presidency. The candidates need to Here's Ed Lee from Emory University. The Kennedy-Nixon debate was a sea change in the way in which we come to understand the presidential debates and what it means in politics. It was the first televised debate and that you had a collection of people who watched the debates on TV and another who did it in the fairly traditional way of listening to it on the radio. When you did surveys of people who listened to it on the radio, they thought that Nixon was the overwhelming winner. When you ask questions of those who watched it on the TV, they thought that Kennedy was the overwhelming winner. That had a lot to do with the aesthetics of the presentation. Kennedy was a young, viral, really handsome presenter of arguments, and Nixon looked gruff. He was sweating, but he was offering some compelling arguments about the course that we should move in. So that became the ways in which we've come to understand uh, in politics that it's not just the reasons that are offered, but it's also how we present. And it's not just the arguments that are presented, but the presenter is very much relevant in whether or not the public will assent to the particular ideas. Kennedy boosted by his superior television presentation, won that election, but would be succeeded by two presidents who were very wary of debates, Lyndon Johnson and then Nixon himself. For that reason, after 1960, there wouldn't be presidential debates again until Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford faced off in 1976. But since then, no campaign for the White House has proceeded without the general election candidates meeting at least once on the debate stage. Alan Schroeder, who literally wrote the book on presidential debates, told me that it's hard to measure the exact impact presidential debates have had on the elections. But we do know that every few years, there are a few memorable debate moments that break through, and sometimes can even change the course of a campaign. So I asked Alan to run through a few of his favorites. 
1976, you had the famous moment where Gerald Ford was uh, asked whether uh, whether the uh, eastern part of Europe was under Soviet domination and said that it wasn't, which was clearly not true, and then held fast to that misstatement. There is no Soviet domination of Eastern Europe, and there never will be under a Ford administration. Uh, I, I'm sorry, I, could I just follow? Did I understand you to say, sir, that the Russians are not using Eastern Europe as their own sphere of influence and occupying most... Um, so that became kind of an object lesson in debates of the danger of, of misstating yourself and the need to correct the record if you do. I don't then, in 1984, there's Ronald Reagan's famous rejoinder about his old age. In the first of his two debates with Walter Mondale, he seemed very out of it. He was having a hard time kind of following the conversation. Uh, and so in the follow-up debate, he gave his famous answer. He was, when he was asked if he was ready to be president and was up to the job, he, he had that famous answer about uh, he was not going to exploit his opponent's youth and inexperience, got a big laugh and sort of put that issue to, uh, to, to rest. Mr. President, I want to raise an issue that I think has been lurking out there for two or three weeks and cast it specifically in national security terms. You already are the oldest president in history, and some of your staff say you were tired after your most recent encounter with Mr. Mr. Uh, Mondale. Um, I recall yet that President Kennedy had to go for days on end with very little sleep during the Cuba Missile Crisis. Is there any doubt in your mind that you would be able to function in such circumstances? Not at all. Mr. Truitt and I, and I want you to know that also, I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit, for political purposes, my opponent's youth and inexperience. The vice presidential debates have also led to their share of memorable moments. You have the, the very well-known, probably one of the most famous uh, incidents from the 1988 vice presidential debate with Dan Quayle being told by his opponent Lloyd Benson that you're no Jack Kennedy after the uh, candidate, Quayle kept comparing himself to uh, John F. Kennedy as a young candidate who didn't have a great deal of experience when he was elected. It is not just age, it's accomplishments, it's experience. I have far more experience than many others that sought the office of vice president of this country. I have as much experience in the Congress as Jack Kennedy did when he sought the presidency. I will be prepared to deal with the people in the Bush administration if that unfortunate event would ever occur. Senator Benson. Senator. I served with Jack Kennedy. I knew Jack Kennedy. Jack Kennedy was a friend of mine. Senator, you're no Jack Kennedy. Will the 2020 debates yield similarly defining moments? We'll look ahead to the Trump-Biden matchups right after this.
Before the break, we looked at key debate moments from presidential history. Now, I ask our debate experts to weigh in with what they'll be watching for when Donald Trump and Joe Biden are side-by-side -side for the first time next week. Here's Alan Schroeder of Northeastern University. Well, let me start with Trump. I think with Trump, you know, there's, there's never any modulation of his performance. He's always the same. And so what we have watched him be over these past four years and what he was in the 2016 debates is exactly what he'll be in the 2020 debates. Now, there's a lot of, you know, sort of variables within that. And there's a lot of unpredictability in the sense of how far will he go or what is he willing to do or say during a debate that makes it hard for the Biden people to prepare. But on the other hand, he's also quite a predictable performer and has a tendency to sort of repeat the same lines over and over again and and project the same tone. So I don't think it's a great mystery what version of Donald Trump we're going to get at the debates. It's the same version we always get. But while President Trump has generally been pretty consistent across his debate performances, Professor Schroeder says his Democratic rival Joe Biden has been a bit more varied. I think there really are two different versions of Joe Biden, and those versions are the Joe Biden that we saw during the primary debates, which was not very positive, and he, he, he did not do very well in this past round of, of primary debates. And then the two debates that uh, that Biden took place uh, took part in as part of the uh, as part of his vice presidential candidacy, the one against Sarah Palin in 08 and the one against Paul Ryan in 2012. In both of those debates, Biden was very, very good and very different. He really was able to tailor the performance that he gave to the circumstances. So with Palin, for instance, he needed to be very, uh, you know, very, very delicate and not come off like he was being sexist or not taking her seriously or patronizing or, or any of that stuff. And he didn't do that. And then with Paul Ryan, he was extremely aggressive, went after him right from the get-go, laughed in his face, didn't take him seriously, and gave a performance that uh, did a, a lot to really alter the trajectory of that race in 2012 after a terrible first debate that, uh, that Barack, Obama, uh, Barack Obama had had against uh, Mitt Romney. I think candidates need to remember that a debate is unlike anything else that they do during the campaign. It's not a stump speech. It's not a rally. It's not an interview with a reporter. It's not a press conference. And candidates do those things all the time, but they'll only debate a few times during the course of, a, uh, of an election. And so it's a muscle that doesn't get exercised very often and if they are smart they'll start exercising that muscle well in advance that's why candidates typically do full-scale rehearsals in real time with mock opponents and in the case of a town hall debate they'll have their aides pose the questions that the citizens would ask the idea is to walk onto that stage and have as much of a comfort zone as you can and to be as used to the idea of being there and, uh, and, and, and doing the debate as is possible.
Next, I asked award-winning debate coach Ed Lee to explain what tips he would give Trump or Biden if they were one of the students on his debate team. When you are losing an argument, one of the things that you can do is to shift the focus of the debate away from that argument. I think that President Trump is losing the debate on the coronavirus. Who's responsible? How he's dealing with it? I actually don't think that that is necessarily damning to his reelection because for a lot of people, the economy is a more salient and important issue than the virus is. If he can shift the conversation to the economy and to that more economically populist message of, I am the one who is going to bring jobs back to the heartland. I am the one who has been on board with revisiting the numerous trade agreements that in his mind and in the minds of many Americans has been devastating to the capacity to grow jobs and to produce a thriving economy. These are the strategies that I would implement in my second term. And by the way, those were the strategies that were successful before the virus hit us. And we just need to return back to that moment. I think that that's his path towards victory. He needs to shift the conversation away from the virus. And in reality, I would say away from this law and order messaging, which also seems to not be working to the strategy that got him elected, economic populism. So shift the debate. Now, his advice for Joe Biden. Joe Biden, Joe Biden, I mentioned this earlier, in that if I was sitting in his prep room and offering him a bit of advice, it would be play defense, but not in the traditional sense of the way in which we would think about that, is that the way, one of the mistakes that I think that the Trump administration made was that they lowered the bar of expectations on Joe Biden for these debates by identifying that he's old, he's washed up, he doesn't really have the mental capacity, he's stuck in a basement, we don't know what he's going to bring, we shouldn't expect very much from him, and that the bar of what he needs to do in order to exceed those expectations seem to be very minimal. And so, the aesthetics of looking presidential, the talking about world leaders you have engaged with and how it is that you are prepared already to do the job with your eight years of experience being vice president and how it is that you are prepared to negotiate numerous crises through your eight years of being a vice president, that experience matters when the crisis hits. And that what has occurred in 2020 is an illustration of the importance of experience. Each of the three debates that he is in is a demonstration of being someone who is sober in their assessment and has a deep understanding of the various tools that the government has in responding to crisis. 
and don't fall into the trap that unfortunately far too many people have done with Donald Trump of getting into the war of words, into the fight of ad hominem attacks, that he needs to be the countervailing and contrasting perspective of what normalcy looks like. To return to the ancient roots of debating that we started with, Ed offered a reminder of the scorecard that the Greeks developed to judge debaters. There's three main characteristics. Logos, or logic. Pathos, use of emotions. And ethos, or credibility. One of the things in that, that Aristotelian sense, it's the balance between those three. It's the balance of balancing logic, passion, and uh, ethics and how the audience perceives your characteristics. Ed said that of the four debaters we'll see face off in the next few weeks, it's actually neither of the presidential candidates who he thinks is most adept at striking that balance. I think that Kamala Harris is probably of the four, the one who is most gifted in the traditional debate sense that we would have. Someone who Aristotle would identify as having a command of ethos, logos, and pathos. And Alan Schroeder also agreed that Senator Harris's matchup against Vice President Mike Pence may actually be the most interesting of the four debates coming up. I am really looking forward to Mike Pence versus Kamala Harris. I think what makes a debate interesting from a viewing standpoint is where you have candidates who are very much opposed, not politically, but just in terms of their personalities. And so to have the, the first African-American uh, mixed ethnicity woman from the Bay Area versus this sort of, you know, extremely religious sort of a traditional Midwestern politician who refuses to be in a room alone with a woman other than his wife. I just, I'm really looking forward to that one. That's, that's, that's the one I'm, I'm gonna make extra popcorn for. first debate between Donald Trump and Joe Biden will air on all the major networks on Tuesday, September 29th. They'll face off again on October 15th and October 22nd. Kamala Harris and Mike Pence will debate each other on October 7th. Thanks to Ed Lee and Alan Schroeder for offering their insights on presidential debates past and future. Take two. Ahem. Gabe Fleischer is the host and creator of Wake Up to Politics. This podcast is a co-production of Gabe Fleischer and St. Louis Public Radio. Joe Manis is the political editor, sound design, and mixing by Aaron Dorr. The music you heard on today's episode comes from Key Locas, Ketza, Glad Rags, Lately Kind of Yeah, and Charisma. The Wake Up to Politics podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, the League of Women Voters of Metro St. Louis, a nonpartisan organization working to inform and encourage active participation in government. Thanks to Lara Hamden for additional narration. Look for new episodes every other Monday here and wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Gabe Fleischer. <laughs>